0: With
1: a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After Nine on 93.1 CFIS FM.
0: It's the Friday edition, and we have the panel coming up in about a half an hour's time. But first off, here is the Friday morning edition of Front Burner from CBC News.
2: Hi, I'm Jamie Poisson. If you caught yesterday's show, you'll know that we're taking a two-part look at some important history in Ukraine and Russia to help understand the war right now. Part one about Ukraine specifically is great, but you can still appreciate this episode without having heard it. I think it's fair to say that you can't understand this invasion without understanding the person waging it, Vladimir Putin. Today, we're going to try and do that. From the wars that he's waged in the past to the ways his presidency has changed through these conflicts. Ben Judah is a guy who knows all about this. He's the author of Fragile Empire, How Russia Fell In and Out of Love with Vladimir Putin. And he's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Europe Center. We got him on the line and Ben started by telling me about the context in which Putin came to power more than two decades ago.
3: It's really important to talk about Russia first and not just Putin. Russia at the end of the 1990s was in a very difficult position economically, geopolitically, internally. All hopes of a better life, of living standards reaching those of the United States or Canada within a few years had been dashed as the Soviet economy had imploded into chaotic, piratical privatisation, runaway inflation and finally a default. And within Russia the breakaway uh, territory of uh, Chechnya had defeated the uh, Russian army, humiliatingly, leading to widespread fears that not only the Soviet Union, but also Russia itself and all of its many Muslim republics within the federation, in the Caucasus or even in the Volga, would start to break away as well. In this context, the uh, frightened uh, leader, Boris uh, Yeltsin feeling that on some level he'd led Russia into this terrible situation surrounded by a group of uh, officials and oligarchs known as the family became very frightened that if they left office or they gave over power they might face a prosecution. This family began searching for a President to put in place. And the man that they found, that the oligarch Boris Borozovsky found was Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin had risen rather chaotically from being a lieutenant colonel for the KGB in Dresden back to politics in, uh, St. Petersburg, uh, where he's from natively. And then through a whole kinds of, uh, strange twists and turns that ended up as a figure in moscow and as a uh, head of the uh, fsb russian domestic intelligence and Berezovsky thought that this would be a great guy to uh, be a bodyguard president for <laughs> the family because he had sort of security rank he was relatively young he was pliable he was healthy in fact he was everything that boris Yeltsin was not
2: Boris Yeltsin made Putin prime minister, a clear sign that he was laying a path for the presidency. Just a month later, a series of mysterious bombings in Russian apartment blocks, 300 people dead. The government blames Chechen terrorists, and this serves as a catalyst for the second Chechen war. Putin speaks in strong, crude terms.
4: We will
0: follow the terrorists wherever they go. If they are at the airport, we will be there. Excuse me, but if they're in the toilets, we will go in there and blow them away. That's all there is to it. The problem is solved.
2: And suspicions have long lingered that these attacks might have actually been orchestrated by Russian intelligence services.
3: Later, independent investigations presented evidence that strongly suggested the bombings were a false flag attack, coordinated by Russian security services to win support for a new full-scale war in Chechnya.
2: Just a few months later, Putin is riding a wave of popularity for his tough stance on terrorism. And Boris Yeltsin hands over his presidency. On December 31st, 1999...
3: At the start of Putin's presidency, it really sort of begins in war with Putin's uh, spin doctors, although really at the time they were Berezovsky and the Yeltsin family's spin doctors, take him to Chechnya shortly after midnight in uh, New Year to sort of celebrate the sort of chiming of the Kremlin clocks at midnight with the troops and little plastic uh, shot glasses of Mm -hmm. uh, vodka. So being a a war president was a fundamental part of the message from uh, the very beginning.
2: And and tell me more about how Putin handled this war, known as the the Second Chechen War.
3: So the Second Chechen War, that's Putin's uh, Chechen War, ends in Russian victory. And it ends in Russian victory at enormous cost, which is the siege of Grozny. There's
4: nothing left,
3: is Mirzara kept repeating.
4: There's nothing left.
3: Nearby, an awesome array of military equipment stands ready for the task of levelling the city. The 20,000 civilians left inside won't be allowed to stand in its way. Devastation of the city, uh, captured through uh, artillery fire and uh, multiple human rights uh, violations. Pretty similar, sadly, to the sieges we are seeing in Kharkiv and uh, we are likely to see soon beginning on uh, Kiev in Ukraine. Putin at the time was not yet a personalist dictator, as we like to call them in political science. Putin was a sort of populist strongman. It wasn't clear how democratic Russia was or wasn't. And Putin presented himself as... A sort of West-friendly nationalist that wanted to sort of modernise his country and his economy, wasn't expansionist, ideological or imperial, was simply trying to bring this rebel province to heel. And who was fascinated by figures like Tony Blair in the United Kingdom, who viewed him as sort of model modern leader? Putin uh, presented his war on Chechnya as an anti-terrorist operation. So notice the uh, language that's lingered to the present in which he's describing his war in Ukraine as an anti-terrorist uh, operation. Uh-huh. And when the West took, you know, no real steps to sanction or place any pressure whatsoever on Putin because of his uh, intense rhetoric that uh, this was something necessary for Russian security. These were terrorists. He was ready to help the West on all of its other dossiers. He took a lesson from this, which is that the West is uh, all talk and no bite when it comes to human rights uh, violations.
2: This friendlier relationship with the West that Ben mentioned might be hard to imagine now. But in March 2000, Putin entertained the idea of Russia joining NATO when asked about it by a journalist.
0: Why not? Why not? I do not rule out such a possibility in the case that Russia's interests will be reckoned with if it will be an equal partner.
2: In April of that same year, then British Prime Minister Tony Blair said,
3: I believe that. Vladimir Putin is a leader who is ready to embrace a new relationship with the European Union and with the United States, who wants a strong and modern Russia and a strong relationship with the West.
2: Putin was the first international leader to call then-U.S. President George W. Bush after the 9-11 attacks. By November, he was visiting Bush at his Texas ranch. Yesterday, the two presidents took a car ride on the estate of George Bush. That's approximately 650 acres. And that was followed by a cowboy-style dinner with country music. They even addressed a local high school together.
5: Yesterday, we tasted steak and listened to music and uh, all of this. With a single purpose and uh, objective to increase the level of confidence between the leaders and the peoples.
6: President Putin liked the barbecue last night. Ask him.
5: Just I had
7: hard time imagining how could a living person
5: create such masterpiece masterpiece of, of cooking.
0: Fantastic! <laughs>
2: An assembly that ended with Putin enlisting the help of the students to invite Bush to
0: Russia.
7: At the count of three, those who want your president to come to
8: Russia, raise your hands and say yes. One, two, yes. (laughs) Thank you all. Very good night.
2: But obviously, Putin's behavior towards the West changed.
3: There's a big strategic picture where the... West is at fault. And then there is a personal picture about how leaders interact with each other, and how they can trust each other, where Vladimir Putin is at fault. So let's unpack that. The big picture of failure is that Russia began the dissolution of the Soviet Union, convinced deeply idealistically that even after the confrontation it had pursued with the United States and its allies for decades, it was going to be sort of welcomed into the community as a sort of vice president of the uh, West and not a ceremonial one. Mm. And that mm-hmm. the West would offer it a sort of Marshall Plan. And the West was never able to provide the necessary funds. There was never a Marshall Plan for Russia. And the West was never able to offer some kind of route map to genuinely actually joining the West structurally. And the reasons are, the reasons in the second category, they're the reasons of how politics operates personally. And that's, they simply never could trust Boris Yeltsin and Vladimir Putin, who were practicing human rights violations already with the first uh, Chechen war. And then the second Chechen war already, were, Russia was pursuing elements of revanchism in the Baltic states, viewing itself as a suzerain over Ukraine and Central Asian uh, territories. So from a kind of big picture, mega strategy perspective, you know, the West, you know, was never able to integrate Russia into its solar system. And strategists view that as a failure. And maybe if it have managed to do so, we wouldn't have ended up in this, uh, this tragic situation we're now in. But you yeah. can understand why it didn't happen. Because politics doesn't take place on the level of strategy, it takes place on the level of people. This simply wasn't uh-huh. a country that was behaving in its leadership like it could ever really uh, become a genuine NATO ally, which means not just signing a pact with the West. It means integrating into the West's actual defensive military structures. So for them, and I tend to agree from the leader's point of view, it looks impossible.
2: Earlier, Ben described Putin coming to power as a sort of populist strongman. But the nature of Putin's rule, it started to change. And Putin's turn against the West continued.
3: Putin Moved into an anti-Western position because of a couple of factors. The first is his strongman rule started to evolve into an authoritarian regime. The elements of democracy that had been constructed by Boris Yeltsin were dismantled and then progressively destroyed. The elections of 2004 were almost completely uh, rigged. As he entered the Great Hall of the Kremlin for his inauguration, Vladimir Putin was well aware that he has a free hand for what is supposed to be his second and last manual. And then he started to fear uh, democracy that was coming through kind of protest movements uh, across the former Soviet Union. A lot of it supported by kind of Western foundations or Western idealism or kind of uh, grants. When he looked at two revolutions that take place, one in Georgia and one in uh, Ukraine in 2004 and 2004, respectively, Putin doesn't see the dynamics of simply open societies westernising and dreaming of a place in a common European home that's democratic and anchored around Brussels, where both the EU and the NATO headquarters are. He sees CIA plots to his sphere of influence that he believes is rightly his, coming for him next. We've got a backdrop here of the Iraq War... Uh, what, in hindsight, you know, foreign policy analysts and historians uh, view as a highly dangerous, belligerent American unilateralism with very destructive consequences. Saddam Hussein and his sons must leave Iraq within 48 hours. Their refusal to do so will result in military conflict. Which uh, frightened Putin, made him think that this country was unstable and hostile and had not come to terms with uh, a sort of peace, a cold peace after the Cold uh, War, and was uh, in fact at the next opportunity going to try and sort of come after Russia in whatever ways. And he starts to think the relationship with the West has gone has gone south. Things get tense. Things come to a head in what's called the Bucharest uh, NATO summit in 2008. And just as a kind of sign of how close the relationship was, Putin had accepted. NATO's eastern uh, expansion to Romania, Poland, and even the Baltic states that were part of the Soviet Union because he said, obviously, NATO's a defensive alliance, it's not kind of aimed against me or attacking me, and he still harboured hopes of playing an important political role sort of around it. He was at the summit, and at the summit, the question of should Ukraine and Georgia be given a sort of action plan to join NATO China. came up. Here in Bucharest, we must make clear that NATO welcomes the aspirations of Georgia and Ukraine
5: for their membership in NATO and offers them a f- clear path forward
3: to meet that goal.
7: But Russia Putin
3: famously said that Ukraine is not Angel even a state. It's really just an extension of Russia that's accidentally become uh, independent and made it clear that a decisive break in the relationship would uh, happen if this went ahead. A compromise was decided on, and actually in hindsight the compromise itself looks rather dangerous, in which... These countries will be told they have the option, the possibility of joining NATO in the long run. But that was not going to happen anytime soon. And in that uncertainty, things start to go wrong geopolitically.
0: On 93.1 CFIS-FM, that is the first segment of your Friday morning front burner from CBC News. Part 2 coming up in a moment here on After 9.
4: Give your morning a boost with some sounds from above with Songs in the Chapel, Sunday mornings at 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Join me, Corey Walker, as I fill the airwaves with the sounds of heavenly gospel music. I feature a mixture of traditional country, bluegrass, southern and black gospel, and even a little bit of worship and contemporary Christian music. An inspiring message from the Salvi Shemi's Heartbeat series is featured in every show. A Songs and Chapel, Sunday morning to 9, only here on 93one CFISFM.
0: Learn to love your smile again at Dirt Denture Center. Dirt Denture Center offers a full range of denture services, from partial dentures to complete dentures. Same-day repairs are also available. Dirt Denture Center is located on the third floor of the Victoria Medical Building with easy elevator access. Come in for a free complimentary consultation, no referral required. For help with your existing set or if you need new, Dirt Denture Center in the Victoria Medical Building Call 250-562-6638. Forecast
5: from Environment Canada. Mainly cloudy today, a 30% chance of light snow this morning. Wind at 15K, a high of 3 with a morning wind chill to minus 5. Tonight, mainly cloudy, a low of minus 7. For Saturday, clearing in the morning, a wind at 15K, a high of 1 with a morning wind chill to minus 10. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM.
0: And here is part two of your Friday morning front burner from CBC News.
2: So I wanted to get a sense from Ben of Putin's other military incursions besides Chechnya into Georgia in 2008, into Crimea in 2014, the bombing campaigns in Syria starting in 2015, and what Putin might have learned from them.
3: You know, it's not only as political scientists like to say, The state makes war and war makes the the state. It's also the leader makes war and uh, war then remakes the leader. Putin um, was determined to stop Georgia uh, joining NATO. He provoked Georgia into attacking a rebel area of uh, Georgia under. Russian uh, influence, and he staged an intervention.
0: Columns of Russian tanks and troops rolled into the American-backed former Soviet Republic of Georgia today after a nighttime barrage of artillery fire and rockets. George... It was a rapid
3: lightning war. She smashed the uh, Georgian military.
7: We are very, very scared, and some people are trapped right now. Uh, civilians, many civilians are trapped in... Their uh, houses in those cellars, as um, uh, very heavy fighting
3: still goes on, and with it any hope of that country joining uh, NATO. And the response: no Western sanctions, Georgia's NATO EU membership not only being completely taken off the table as a realistic prospect. Uh, Georgian society entering into a sort of spiral of defeats which resulted in a sort of oligarch with a more sort of Kremlin, accommodationist politic uh, taking over the country.
5: Bidzina Ivanishvili, Georgia's newly elected (laughs) prime (laughs) minister, (laughs) and with a fortune estimated to be around $6.5 billion, (laughs) he's also the country's richest man. His he viewed Green that as
3: simply what he had to do. To you know, he had to, to cut through reversed, all this rhetorical guff protest, that was emanating protest. from the West, mm-hmm. find out where power and response really uh, lied, mm-hmm. and then act. And once he acted, he could recreate facts. So after that, we see a desire to have a reset. We see a desire to have a uh, relationship with the West, coming from the Western side with uh, Russia that puts these things behind and he interprets that as a sign of weakness. And yeah. then we have a few more of these interventions. The next one is in Ukraine. Putin decided that he had to take action, like in Georgia, to stop Ukraine leaving this, what he believed was a Russian sphere. He annexed Crimea. It was an operation that was done incredibly successfully, a special operation done uh, with almost no resistance.
9: With the stroke of a pen, Russia defied protesters in Kiev, minorities in Crimea, and leaders across the Western world.
8: Crimea is about Sevastopol a legendary
0: city.
3: There were Western sanctions, but they were not really serious. They didn't dismantle Russia's place in international capitalism. They didn't stop Russia's presence in the sort of international oligarchy around the world, enjoying the high life in the Cote d'Azur or in London's Mayfair or in uh, Switzerland or even in the uh, United States. And he thought, actually, yet again, they're all uh, talk and no bite. I can live with this. I can live with a bit of tension, a bit of Cold War. It actually serves me if these oligarchs get a bit sanctioned. Then Putin decided to do it again and to intervene in uh, Syria. And through a very bloody, very messy, very chaotic series of special uh, operations. Cockpit video from Russian bombers over Syria today. Pinpoint strikes against terrorists, claim the Russians. As ever in war, such claims should be treated with extreme caution. The Russian military managed to turn the tide in favour of uh, Assad, the Syrian uh, dictator and his regime, and they managed to turn Syria into a sort of Russian client state. And You'll notice that Syria, within hours, had recognised Putin's uh, recognition of the sort of fake republics of Donetsk and Luhansk that started uh, this war sometime after that, Putin changes.
2: I'm going to pop in one more time here because you're about to hear Ben use some political science speak about yet another change in Putin. He says Putin starts running a personalist dictatorship. Basically, the decisions of Putin and Putin alone determine policy.
3: Putin goes from being an authoritarian leader ruling a regime, a guy who when he made the decision to annex Crimea gathered his henchmen around him, they did a polling see how it would play with the country's population, and then, only then did they strike to being, you know, a personalist dictator. And in this sort of phase of personalist dictatorship, Putin begins to believe things that are not quite True. He begins to overestimate himself. He begins to make poor decisions. He begins to uh, make uh, poor sort of military choices, and he begins to draw up a battle plan for a special operation to bring down Ukraine. Putin thought that he could do a special forces lightning attack to collapse the Ukrainian government within days, send the Ukrainians reeling, bring them back into the uh, Russian fold in some capacity and do that mm-hmm. shock the West. And before the West knew what was happening, he would have gotten away with it and there wouldn't be any serious sanctions. And the sanctions there would be, he could withstand that. Now, what's happened is that, as often happens with personalist dictators, they make a terrible mistake. They draw up utterly ridiculous war plans. And Putin's made a lot of mistakes in the first few days. He thought that he would get, grab huge swathes of territory actually turn into a really difficult slog. So we're now in that phase. And Putin underestimated the West. He sort of bought the the froth, really, online about the end of the West, and the West sort of having collapsed under European sort of uh, indolence and corruption and Brexit and uh, Trump and sort of rubbish about uh, Biden's uh, age. And he's set out to revive an empire like the Russian Empire or the uh, Soviet Union. In fact, he's revived the West. He's been hit with very severe sanctions that have actually pushed him, I would go as far as to say, out of international capitalism.
2: Given all of this, given how this war is is certainly somewhat more, as as you've said, more of a challenge than he was expecting. I, you know, I know, I know you can't predict this, but like, how then does this end, or where could it go from here?
3: So, how do wars end? How does a war like this come to its uh, conclusion? When a personalized dictator goes to war, it's really all about him. So we can see two things that a personal dictator can do in this context. One is he starts to see kind of cracks at home and dissent, panics, and then cuts a deal. Or he can think, I'm looking weak, I need to go all in, I need to keep fighting, otherwise they'll get rid of me. So those are the two realistic ways that Putin is going to approach this. It's not as if Russia has entered into a war and then there are a whole series of Russian leaders that are going to be pushing him to keep this going. That would be the mm-hmm. wrong way to look at it. And really, how's it going to end? We could see two scenarios uh, there. You know, one is that he fights on for uh, another week or so and starts sending signals to the West if they remove the sanctions on the central bank and they remove all of these banking sanctions, he'll declare his special operation complete uh, in exchange for an agreement that Ukraine will never join uh, NATO and the country mm-hmm. demilitarises to some capacity. Or he could have concluded that actually a break with the West, a break with capitalism itself sort of suits him and uh, he will rule as a sort of uh, sort of North Korean dictator of the largest country uh, in the world in a sort of hermit uh, state. And in order to achieve that and retain his throne, he has to sort of press on like the Chechen war all the way to for a siege of Kiev and uh, all of the blood uh, that will come from that. In which case, we might see the map of Ukraine come to resemble tragically the map of Syria, in which there are... Goes on for a very, very long time. There's an incredibly complicated map of sort of patrols, semi-rebel held areas, rebel held areas, a real sort of patchwork, roads that are controlled by sort of rebels by night and the government uh by day, and a lot of bloodshed and a lot of refugees coming out of it. So the answer is we we don't know. Like certainly the Russian military appears to have received orders to switch into Chechnya uh mode and out of special operation mode but we need to be humble about what we know about black box like the Kremlin
2: okay Uh, but Gina thank you so much for this thank you thank you that's all for today Front burner comes to you from CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our producers are Simi Bassey, Imogen Burchard, Ali Janes, Katie Toth, Derek Vanderwijk. Mackenzie Cameron and Nora Dean Karane do our sound design. Joseph Chavison did our music. Our intern is Samantha McNulty. The executive producer is Nick McKay Blocos, and I'm Jamie Poisson. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.
0: That is your Friday morning edition of Front Burner from CBC News here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. You can also catch the Front Burner on your CBC lesson app wherever you find your favorite podcasts. When After 9 resumes, in a moment, it is the Friday panel with your host, Rez Krebs. The Beat is back Sunday with the Street Beat Donation Drop at the Q3 Building, a presentation of
1: 93.1 CFIS-FM and Happy Drummer Productions. Featuring the music of seven local artists, including Patchwork, Steve Baker, and and the Kickers. Venue seating will be available, and the event will be live-streamed on Facebook. All donations go directly to St. Vincent de Paul. Full details are available at the CFIS-FM Facebook page. The Street Beat Donation Drop, Sunday from 2 to 9
5: at the Q3 Building. At Quebec and 3rd. Theatre Northwest has a great spring break camp for ages 13 to 19. Youth Theatre Camp is a week-long intensive camp for teens. Participants will learn and practice fundamental theatre skills while collaborating on playwright Julian Legere's new adaptation of Jordan Tannehill's award-winning play, Rihanna Boy 95. For more information or to sign up, visit the Playwriting and Theatre Youth Camp link under Shows and Events at theaternorthwest.com. Youth Theatre Camp, running March 14th to 19th at Theatre Northwest. Featuring the people who
1: make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
8: Good morning. Welcome to our Friday political panel. I'm your host, Rez Krebs, and today, as always, we've got Trudy Clausen, Peter Ewart, Herb Martin, Art Betke, and Eric Allen. And today I'd like to start off our conversation with a... uh, Announcement that came this week. Uh, well, I guess it was last week, February 25th. Um, there's a new ministry in, in in British Columbia, the Ministry of Land, Water, and Resource Stewardship. Um, really what this ministry has, what they've done with this new ministry, this was the result of Nathan Cullen's um, work to to reform uh the forestry ministry um they've hived off all of the engagement and consultation aspects of the the uh resource ministry so mining forestry uh aquaculture for instance um and they're also going to be building a co-managed land and resource management system with first nations which was a uh actually a requirement under Flynn Row, if, if I'm correct, the uh, ministerial mandate for uh, Katrina Conroy. Now that's going to be in this new ministry. It'll also lead the coordination of a clean drinking water strategy. It'll oversee ecosystem health, including the species at risk program. You know, this, um, I'm not sure if people are following the Caribou file, but uh, BC is in breach of the federal SARA order um, because there's no real uh, plan that's working to to prevent that species from basically going extinct, um, bringing more certainty to the resource sector, etc. So, what I'm hearing from this new ministry is that it's going to solve all our problems. Uh, I'd love to hear what folks have to say about this new ministry. You think that it's going to actually deliver on increasing democratic um, uh, access to how resource decisions are made, or are we talking about a shell game and more stall tactics? So we'll start with Eric. <laughs>
6: Thanks for that. (laughs) I was just thinking, we had, uh, back in the 50s, we had a Minister of uh, Lands, Forests, and Water Resources by the name of Ray Williston, so it's not exactly new, but I guess what they're trying to do with it is new. Uh, I don't know how they're going to do this. Are they just going to spend all the time trying to figure out how to get it set up and how it's going to work and who's going to run it or... Are they going to have some specifics that uh, we can actually get our teeth into and do something? We certainly need uh, a better way of looking after our forests and our fish and and our water and that. I mean, clean water is something we should have solved years ago, and uh, we haven't seemed to get around to it. So we need governments to take a lot more responsibility besides talking about what they're going to do. The... uh, First Nations part of it you know I, I don't know how this is going to work like that land that was set aside uh, for the old growth forest there for two years deferred for two years and then they come to some sort of an agreement and decide what portion of that will be First Nations and what portion will remain with the government or something is all well and good but what I'm not hearing is uh, if the First Nations decide that they want to log it and uh and sell it, or whatever, uh, are they just free to go and do that? Uh, so could we end up being, I mean, they're supposed to be supposedly the keepers of the forest, but if they decide it's their land and their trees and they want to sell them, and they sell them to uh, one of the big multinational lumber companies, then we've lost it, or at least the environmentalists uh, that are trying to protect those trees lose it. And I don't hear any talk about that, so i would be interesting to uh, maybe see if somebody else has heard anything.
8: Yeah, I'll just say, uh, I, I've, I've been kind of on the inside of that deferral program and, uh, my understanding is that there is no process for how to, how to choose which areas to defer at the moment. So we had a big announcement about this deferral and we don't have any movement on it yet. Uh, Art, speaking about the, um, the taking away of resource management planning from the resource ministries themselves, do you think that's actually going to result in getting some more democratic resource management plans complete, or are we now having minister ministries fight against each other?
10: I don't think we're necessarily going to have ministries fight against each other, but we are going to... Uh create a much more massive bureaucracy and many more delays in trying to get things done. You know, it used to be if you had a proposal to do any kind of resource extraction, you would make the application and get the permits, and you'd be running within a few months, and now it's a few years, and then it's going to be more years and decades, and all the approvals and Uh, everything you have to get and uh, I think it's going to be hugely damaging to the economy and to any resource industries that we have this has been uh, basically the the way it runs anytime uh, anybody tries to uh, determine how to like they're going to closely manage uh, the economy in any way it's always always bad you have to the the worst uh, thing you can do, uh, the most impediment you can have for a business is regulations and uh, bureaucracy. It's not high taxes. High taxes are bad enough, but this is worse than high taxes.
8: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they have actually halted new permits, for instance, in the BC Northeast uh, oil and gas sector because of the Blueberry River decision. Um, you know, and I'm. Um, what I'm understanding about this new ministry is that we're going to get a more robust planning system in place than the current, you know, referral process. Uh, we'll take a break and we'll start talking about this again, uh, in a couple of minutes. The Beat is back Sunday with the Street Beat Donation Drop in the Q3
5: building, a presentation of 93.1 CFIS-FM and Happy Drummer Promotions. Featuring the music of seven local artists, including the Chevys, Far From Linear, and Genevieve Jade, venue seating will be available and the event will be live-streamed on Facebook. All donations go directly to St. Vincent de Paul. Full details are available on the CFISFM Facebook page. The Street Beat donation drop Sunday from 2 to 9
0: in the Q3 building at Quebec and 3rd. The Prince George Potter's Guild is excited to be offering classes again this spring. Beginner Hand Building Level 1 will take place Thursday evenings from 6.30 to 9.30 starting April 21st. No previous experience is required for this six-week course. Cost is $285 with registration available through the PG Potter's Guild Classes link under Gallery and Shop at Studio2880.com. The Beginner Hand Building Level 1 course starting April 21st from the Prince George Potter's Guild. A series of free industry certification courses will
5: take place at CNC during Coastal Gas Link Safety Week, March 14th to 20th. Over the course of the week, students can learn a range of skills and receive industry-certified safety tickets supporting the in-demand needs of the current labor market. Space is limited, so timely registration is encouraged. For a full schedule of courses and to register, visit cnc.bc.ca slash cgl. Coastal GasLink Safety Week training at CNC, March 14th to 20th. Forecast from Environment Canada, mainly cloudy today, a 30% chance of light snow this morning. Wind at 15K, a high of 3 with a morning wind chill to minus 5. Tonight, mainly cloudy, a low of minus 7. For Saturday, clearing in the morning, a wind at 15K, a high of 1 with a morning wind chill to minus
8: 10.
1: Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
8: So, Herb, you're a forester. I mean, do you think that uh, this new ministry has the potential to improve the planning process?
4: Uh, I'm actually not a forester. I, I work in forestry. but oh, um, sorry. Um, look, it, it's it's well-documented. The Ministry of Forest is um, hope, hopelessly compromised. Uh, Anthony Britneff, who worked there over 40 years, has documented how um, industry is, has basically captured that whole ministry. It's... Um, it's um, I mean, it's it's a somewhat of a step forward for the government to try and do something. But uh, really, they, what they should have done was take the bull by the horns and uh, reorganize Ministry of Forest and and the other ministries really to uh, reflect uh, problems that have come up. And um, we're not doing that. What what this province needs is um, uh, fundamental forestry and and resource reform. Uh, we need a, a royal commission or. Some sort of inquiry uh, that uh, puts all the facts on the table and let let, let people really start making some hard decisions because we have to make them. Uh, adding more bureaucrats to another ministry—look, maybe it'll help in the short term, but it's it's no it's no solution.
8: Yeah, I wonder about that short term. I I, I look at this and think, considering the intransigence of the uh, current negotiations that were happening um, in advance of this decision and the there was already an intention to to build better resource management planning across the province but for some reason it didn't go anywhere I'm not sure exactly why um, I'm not sure if we're gonna get um, get what we are promised here Peter what are your thoughts on this new ministry and whether I mean are we going to get more democracy in our resource planning
7: uh, well that that's an issue that's the you know like I agree with what others are saying that you know we're sort of at a tipping point in terms of Forests and land and resources uh, in the province. Um, you know, the you know one of the big problems in the past has been the lack of input and control by uh, by communities, whether they're indigenous communities or uh, non-indigenous communities. You know, will uh, this uh, you know new ministry sort of pave the way forward? Uh, yeah, I, I would go along with what uh, Herb is saying. Right? You know, like we're in a situation where. Big companies uh dominate everything in a really big way, and um, you know this this could be a, a step forward in some ways uh, but uh you know like the the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and uh we, we have to look at the mechanisms and the means uh you know that would be put in place to uh, you know bring it a, bring about more um, community input and also the extent of it you know so uh that's what I would just say would be that it could be a step forward. But, uh, I'm, you know, I remain skeptical in a lot of ways because we need an overall, like uh, as what Herb is saying, we have to look at the, uh, the whole thing, the economy, you know, the, the province as a whole, and, and just where we're going in, in, in the future in terms of um, being able to utilize uh, and protect our resources and environment and forests and so on.
8: Okay. I mean, this is true. This is a, this is a serious issue here in our kind of province that burns every, every year. Again, Trudy, what do you think? Is this, is this the way to go? What, what are your thoughts on best practices in terms of how to manage our resources?
9: Well, I think one potential, um, and, and of course, always the devil is in the details and how is this actually going to work and will it work and will it actually be, solve some of the problems? Because I think part of what we've seen is, or part of what needs to happen is there needs to be more local decision making, and this has the potential, like you were saying in in between in the break, has the potential to do that. Um, but but is that what is actually going to happen? Like that's always that's always the problem. And will this be staffed by bureaucrats who know enough about the various concerns and issues that they're going to be able to engage effectively? Um, will do communities have the, the manpower? Do First Nations have the manpower to actually engage effectively? Um, because I know, f- like, I'm I'm really concerned that we are going to a model where we have less and less, like, where our rural communities are shrinking. And I'm, that's one of my big concerns is I really think that we need to <clears throat> not think that, okay, everybody has to end up living in a city in a concrete block. Um, and so I would like to see our rural community because there's a value in living rurally. There's a value in that children who are brought up in, a rural, in rural communities and rural schools, um, that diversity is needed. Um, and so that's my concern is that will this actually improve, um, the economies of small communities and will, like, will this actually do that?
8: That's interesting. I mean, that's actually, um, so i mean we've got consensus that no one actually knows whether or not this thing is a good idea, apart from the fact that there is some serious skepticism about the government putting new bureaucrats on an old problem um, the your point about rural communities is an interesting one, considering the next topic we want to talk about is uh is this potential shift from uh you know the vibrant downtown that we think about when you know we think about these metropolises, um uh, Vancouver, Toronto, San Francisco, Seattle, L.A., you know, huge skyscrapers in the middle of town full of office buildings. Um, you know, during, in the, in the year prior to COVID, I'm just looking at some stats here, uh, something like 3% of Canadians aged 15 to 69 used their home as an office, but in 2021, 32% were working from home. And that's not, percentage of office workers, that's the entire population, right? Yeah, that's huge. You got a third of the, of the workforce working from home, at least temporarily in 2021. What does that mean? I mean, what does that mean for population distribution? What does that mean for, uh, productivity? And what does that mean for our, our downtowns as we know it? I mean, the downtown Prince George has plenty of empty office space already. What is that going to mean for us here? Uh, do you have any uh, any thoughts on that? Are we going to see are we going to see, uh, are we going to see uh, changes here? Are we going to see maybe an influx to the to rural areas?
9: Um, I would. It's it's well possible. There's a lot of people. Like I know a number of people who have who during the pandemic moved into a rural area, and I think that has the potential to increase uh especially with good broadband or satellite internet service um i don't think it's a bad thing but it does require some reimagining of what our cities look like especially small cities because there is a different dynamic and and prince george is one of those small cities and there's a lot of really there have to be some bright minds thinking about that and people who are actually who are willing to do the work into considering those things and those factors
8: all right well we'll talk more about uh the deurbanization of Canada after this. The Prince George Council of Seniors has a permanent
5: full-time position available. The Housing and Community Navigator works with seniors to assist them in connecting with community supports and services. For a full job description, email info.pgcos at gmail.com. Qualified candidates can send a cover letter and resume to the board's attention by email to info.pgcos at gmail.com. The application deadline for the Prince George Council of Seniors' position of Housing and Community Navigator is March 15th. A creative exhibit on now at Gallery investigates the often overlooked role of sound within social relations of power. The Politics of Sound is in through April 10th and expands the understanding of how sound has varying material effects within society. Check out The Politics of Sound through April 10th at Two Rivers Gallery, open 10 to 5 Tuesday through Saturday until 9 Thursday and noon to 5 Sunday, where creativity flows in the Canada Games Plaza.
9: Teen alcohol use kills 4,300 people each year. That's more than all illegal drugs combined. That's why Mothers Against Drunk Driving and Nationwide Insurance are teaming up for Alcohol Awareness Month. MAD's Power of Parents program, featuring a free parent handbook, helps equip parents of teens to start ongoing conversations about the dangers of underage drinking and other drugs. Visit www.mad.org slash powerofparents today.
5: Two Rivers Gallery invites local artists to submit proposals for an original mural design for their wild side space. The wild side is a family-friendly area open to all but mainly geared toward children. Located on the second floor of the gallery, it's filled with activities that encourage curiosity, exploration and learning through play. Submission and other details about the mural are available through Two Rivers Gallery. The Two Rivers Gallery Wildside Mural Call to Artists. Submission deadline is 5 p.m. April 1st.
1: This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM.
8: So we're talking about, you know, whether this move to allow, you know, it's it's still an open question whether employers are going to allow their uh, workers to work from home. A good proportion believe they are um, just as uh, productive at home. I've seen studies that say they are actually just as productive. Um, not everyone wants to continue working from home some people will want to go back to the office but still we're going to have this huge shrinkage in the amount of office space that's actually required art what do you think are we going to see a shrinking in our downtowns and what do we do with this space
10: oh i think the space will just sit there until uh it fills up for through natural uh growth of some kind or other Um, By natural growth, I mean like mass. In in the oil industry in uh, Calgary, the head, number one head offices for oil companies were in Calgary, and they were building office buildings like crazy. And all of a sudden, a crash, and Mm -hmm. they had empty buildings everywhere. Um, And you know, if things pick up, they fill up again. But you know, this is different. Uh, This is a case of people don't need to be there. I have one son who works for Transelta in uh, Spruce Grove, Alberta. He was driving uh, fairly long distance away from town to get to his office every day. And with COVID, they had him working from home. They like it better. He likes it better. Saves them gas money for sure. And uh, he's going to be staying working at home. Uh, another son in uh, Kamloops um, for... Uh, okay. Anyway... uh a company wanted to give him a promotion which required him to move to Edmonton and he said you cannot afford to move my wife to Edmonton <laughs> and uh, so they figured out a way for him to work from home so I think if it works better it will be an ongoing thing however for some people I think there are distractions in the home that might have them working less efficiently I don't know I I I think I would work better away from home if I was an office worker myself.
8: Yeah, I mean, there are, I mean, there are, to be fair, there are distractions in the office too. There's always the water cooler talk, right? There's always somebody looking at a cute cat video that you, you know, everyone gathers around, but I mean, this is. But at
9: home, you have the actual cat.
8: Right, maybe. (laughs) There you go. In in real life. Um, Eric, I mean, what are we going to see? We already have Northern Hardware empty here. We have, I think something like 25% of the downtown office space in Prince George is vacant. Uh, you know how uh, how are we going to fill it up if there's if there's no more demand for office space then what 's the point of having a downtown
6: yeah and, and uh, you know they have these situations now where people are working from home, but they they rent space downtown or at a halfway point or a central point, and they have one or two meetings a year for all the staff there. And that sort of looks like, you know, some people will be going in that direction. Prince George is probably a little bit too small to, to be impacted with this in a big way because we can go anywhere we want in town within 10 minutes. Whereas in Vancouver, some of these areas, you know, if you've got an hour and a half each way, you're basically burning up three hours of your life, five days a week for nothing, other than just to get to working back. And that's a terrible waste of time and space and of course, it's a huge pollution uh, situation. So, and I, I agree with Art that when they had the oil crash there in Calgary, like they started taking some of these high rise uh, office buildings and converting them into uh, apartments, and uh, so people would get a be able to get an apartment there anyway. So, there's some big changes coming, but the problem is you always have to be careful for what you wish for because if we can, you know, work. Uh, from home for Prince George somebody in some other country can work from home for Prince George also and uh, you know it it could lead into another situation where everything's done in a different country and we just get go down to the store and buy it but we need a, a job to make money to go and buy these things so I wouldn't like to see it go too far.
8: Yeah, it's true. I mean, we've seen that in IT services plenty, right? Most of these IT services or call centers, they all move to India, for instance. Yep. Um, Peter, if you had your druthers, what would you do with downtown Prince George?
7: Uh, Well, that's a a tough question, Uh, you know, like in terms of, uh, I think the most important thing is is to find out ways to get more people downtown, working downtown and living downtown, you know, like in terms of long-term solution to the problem there. Uh, I see the, you know this whole question of the changing nature of work uh, you know like that art and Erica have talked about you know you do see some changes there where more people are working at home and all this but I actually don't see that there's going to be fundamental change in, in cities themselves in the sense of people living in cities like I think the c- cities are going to con- c- continue to grow and that the uh, the problem that Trudy raised uh, you know about what's happening with uh, rural areas is is still going to be there. We have to look at things in a whole number of ways. Like technology is one of the things that can help us overcome these kinds of problems, but it's not, it's not an absolute solution, you know, in terms of, um, you know, like we can have zoom meetings and and so on. Right. But uh, uh, it's not going to solve the downtown Prince George problem. We have to look at it in a uh, technology, yes, could be part of it, but there has to be other solutions. Initiatives to solve that problem.
8: All right, Herb, you got a last word. What do you think, Downtown Prince George? Are we going to see an influx of people working here? Will we actually see some of these office buildings fill back up? And I think the—I'm really interested in the question of what to do with the Northern Hardware Building.
4: Uh, well, I think first of all, you got to—you uh, got to solve the pollution problem downtown. It's the worst air quality uh, in Prince George for sure. And uh, once that's solved, I think there will be a lot of people willing to, to live and work downtown. But, uh, yeah, 25% vacancy, that's um, when housing prices are skyrocketing. Uh, same thing with uh, Calgary. Calgary's still got an office. Uh, vacancy rate of 33%. Edmonton's 21 Vancouver's 7 Toronto's 10 Montreal's 13%. I mean, all, a lot of a lot of uh, office could be turned into uh, residential, and uh, it would solve a lot of problems.
8: You think that we could turn the, uh, the old northern hardware into, into condos or something? I mean, what's the...
4: Yeah, it could be, Could be. Uh, I mean, there's lots of space there, high ceilings. Um, yeah, it could be, uh, at, at the very least, uh, really interesting workspaces. But, um, yeah, I don't think that there's any reason to tear that, that building down.
8: Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to see, I think that that's the key here um, to revitalization is an increase in density of population in downtown Prince George. We are seeing that with the condos that are being built here, but there are still so many that are vacant, frankly, I think, because, they're so expensive in comparison to a single family dwelling. They cost the same as a small house, right? Um, And I understand that that's the construction cost, but, you know, I, I, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough decision for a town as I think Peter was mentioning, you can get anywhere in 10 minutes anyway. So what's the point of, of if you can have a full house, then why would you move into a condo unless you're maybe older or, you know, you have, you have mobility issues. Um, but I would love to see some, some increase in, uh, in density here. I guess we have the new student residences, uh, over on, what is that, Patricia. Um, we've got some more, uh, apartment buildings being built in more outlying areas, which is kind of an interesting planning, right? Like, actually near my, my house over on Osbeak and 22nd, there's apartments and townhouses being built, but there's no access to commercial, uh, you know in within walking distance which i feel is like something that is really missing here at prince george unless you're downtown which is exactly where we need more population so that you know it'll actually increase the amount of commercial space being used so anyway we haven't solved that problem either but uh good discussion as usual thanks everyone and have a great uh have a great weekend
1: After 9 is a daily presentation of CFISFM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Echo Wiley, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. Theme music is by The Ebs. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. CA.
8: You're listening to CFIS FM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500. 500-